Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. I'm your host, Mike, and joining me as always is the death dealer to my razor fist, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. Uh, normally, Cody would be here with us tonight, but uh, they invited another person into our cell, and it turns out, not real. Nobody else could hear him. I'm horrified at the idea of Cody not having a face. <laughs> And also yeah, really, being a Chinese mythological creature, which is actually appropriate. I really wish that in the near decade we've been doing this podcast, one of you fuckers at home would have let us know that Cody wasn't real and was an, a Chinese myth chicken. Can I say one of the greatest jokes in, I think, cinematic history is Ben Kingsley, Ben Kingsley's complete, sincere delivery of Oh, thank God you can see him. Like, just the the casualness of, oh, <laughs> this thing I've been talking to is real. Good, good. Like, he's not been that worried about it. He's kind of just accepted he may be talking to a figment of his own imagination. But he's still happy to know that he's not. And that might be the best joke in cinematic history. That, that, that Iron Man 3's existence is justified for that one joke being allowed to exist <laughs> eight years later. Oh, spoilers. Uh, ben Kingsley is in uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which is what we're, of course, talking about tonight. We went off on a tangent there for a second. So Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, a title I will literally never get tired of saying over and over again till the end of time. And it is accurate. Shang-Chi becomes part of the Legend of the Ten Rings by the end of that movie. For, for once, a movie subtitle isn't some bullshit. Jamie, I'm going to be honest. That hadn't occurred to me until you just <laughs> said it. And oh my god, does that title actually have more connotations than I was expecting. Yes, yeah, none of that Curse of the Black Pearl bullshit. Which is even more impressive considering, you know, the Legend of the Ten Rings is... Much like comic book Mandarin, if they're from an indeterminate origin and found in a mountain somewhere. <laughs> okay, so Mike and I saw this movie together, and without a doubt, the highlight of the film was during the opening, where they make it clear that they're using both vague origins of the Mandarin's rings, and we just turned to each other and silently gave each other a look. It's <laughs> like, well, this was done to make us happy. And we're wearing face masks at the time, so that really paints a picture. <laughs> so, Shang-Chi might be, um, honestly, one of my new favorite Marvel movies. Which, Same. I mean, it looked yeah. great. It, it did look great. But I was not expecting that just from... You know, not to say because the character's not, you know, the biggest thing or, or not is as important, but you kind of look at a character like Shang-Chi, it's like, okay, this is going to be like, it's going to be like an Ant-Man, where it's going to be one of the the smaller characters, it's going to be a little more condensed, um, it's going to still be really good, like Ant-Man the Wasp is one of my favorite Marvel movies, I think it's great, um, 
I was kind of expecting that from Shang-Chi. Like, oh, it's going to be like a really cool Marvel martial arts movie with some of the like Marvel fantasy stuff, Ten Rings and all that. And it's going to fix some past Marvel stuff by uh, having actual Mandarin in here and, and kind of address that. And it'll it'll be, you know, be a lot of fun and, and cool and be it's going to be awesome. Like have like a something more akin to Black Panther. I did not expect this to be essentially like the new Black Panther. I don't. I don't mean that purely from, um, you know, the fact that it has this all Asian cast, which is fucking awesome. I love how there's like no white people in this at all, and that, and how authentic and loving this is to that no white people um, except Razor Fist, who is the ultimate white person. Technically, he's a Nazi. Um, <laughs> I don't have anything to back that up, but um. <laughs> And, and how authentic it is to uh, Asian culture and how respectful it is. But I, I mean, from the world, the encompassing world of it, um, both lighting like pop culture on fire in a big way, but also just taking you into this space and really blowing you away um, as if you're seeing, not to compare it to, you know, other superhero movies, but... In the same way that it would affect you as a as a Superman movie or a Batman movie or the the first time you saw Iron Man or Spider Man or something, where it's Shang Chi like means something now, like it affects you in in a way. Yeah, what what's taken decades to happen to the character of Luke Cage has happened to Shang Chi virtually overnight from being a character. That was both obscure and ridiculed in a lot of circles to being a character that's become like really like iconic and inspiring for people in a very short amount of time is uh no no as in preparation for the movie's release, I decided to take advantage of the Marvel Unlimited app and just go through a lot of the old uh Doug Monk uh Master of Kung Fu stories, which are super problematic for obvious reasons, but a lot of those stories are pretty good. But they're not stories you can do anything with, and they're not stories that really need to be told with Shang-Chi. Like, the reason people love the classic Shang-Chi comics are because they're really good James Bond stories that just happen to star a Kung Fu master. Shang-Chi has the personality of Silver Surfer, and it's mostly about the white people who are around him. There's not really anything to build off of that. And Shang-Chi's popped up here and there. Like Luke Cage, he owes a lot to Brian Bendis, just randomly throwing him into things whenever he started running through Marvel in the 2000s. And there's been some good stuff with the character, but he still come up, has always come away feeling like a character without a specific direction or a specific voice. So the team behind Shang-Chi was doing arguably even more legwork than Coogler and company had to do with Black Panther because they kind of had to create their own superhero out of scraps. That's a good way of putting it because it's I, I wouldn't say they abandon anything from Shang-Chi as a character, as a pre-existing character. But the best way to describe it is... If Shang-Chi, as this as this character with this long comic book history, um, is a is a mirror, they shattered the mirror, picked up all the pieces, and then put it back together. 
And before where it was a square, they turned it into a round mirror. Like they, they smoothed it out. They, they added a lot. They, they, you know, they took a little bit from Iron Fist in a way, but not really as much as one would think. I, I think actually, and getting rid of the Fu Manchu of it all also really freed them up to play with the parentage story in a way that I, I think fits Shang-Chi a lot stronger than a lot of other characters that kind of shoot into the 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 father-son kind of aspect story, the familial aspect story. The idea of legend um, kind of playing very strongly on the character of Shang-Chi. Uh, legend not being able to let go of the past. I, I think it's very appropriate that Shang-Chi and... Um, the Doctor Strange Supreme episode of What If came out the same week because they actually play with the exact same themes, but for different characters and in different ways. I very much so. I mean, even I uh, look at uh, the movie's antagonist, Wen Wu, a very, very unique uh, take on the Mandarin, who honestly is just head and shoulders above any other version of this character we've ever gotten. Uh, that's a character who's divine, uh, who's defined almost entirely by not being able to let go of the past. First, by you know not being able to let go of this ancient power he's acquired that he's done nothing good with, and being reluctant to let go of his empire, which eventually bites him in the ass with his wife's death, and then his eventual refusal to let go of her. Uh, I I like how a movie. Uh, this progressively minded also has a very progressive heart. Like a heart, like the heart of this movie is you have to move on from the pain of the past. You have to forge a new version of yourself that can deal with the new world you're w- walking into. Because if you try to solve new problems using the same old methods, you're just going to fail and destroy everything around you. Something I that's why I really love the very, very subtle storytelling with Wen Wu training Shang-Chi from birth to always fight with a closed fist. That's something that's even featured in the marketing heavily with him, uh, uh, his Dragon Ball Z training of hitting the the post every morning. And eventually Shang-Chi realizes he's fighting completely wrong and has to fight with an open palm. Like, just, mwah, chef's kiss. Like, you don't need any dialogue. You don't need to say anything else. Just that one change in his fight, fighting style. Like, that's a character arc there. Like, I, I fucking love that. And that's very, that's also very kung fu movie of the. Very, yeah. That whole philosophy of, no, no, you have to let go of all this stupid shit that's dragging you down so you can be open for new ideas. I mean, that's the, at the heart of, like, pretty much any classic Shaw Brothers movie, especially something like uh, uh, 36th Chamber of Shaolin, which was a huge uh, influence on the filmmakers. It's the reason the Ten Rings are gauntlets now. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of what, what, there's a lot of boiled down, like, old kung fu film uh, philosophy. As you kind of look at it, there's honestly not a ton of martial arts fighting. Um, was a good amount. I mean that uh, that opening um, crouching tiger style fight. It's very silent and goes on a very long time. Is beautiful and it's just a, an amazing, amazing fight. Um, but instead of taking like the kung fu movie and going, well, this is the kung fu movie. Is that they you know they do a lot of kung fu and you know it's 
it's very it's a little bit over the top and it's a tone like no we're gonna take the philosophy of what's underneath like those shaw brothers movies and that's what we're gonna take away that's what we're gonna utilize and even um subtle things like playing wen Wu's toxic remembrance of the past to that leads him to eventually not even care that he's releasing the dweller in darkness to something like um, Aquafina's character's grandmother at the beginning, you know, having it still a seat at the table for her deceased husband and still leaving gifts for him, but it's to it's to honor to for him in the afterlife. It's not it's not it's not that you have to let go, but you have to place it within context. You have to live with the loss to move on. And in a way, Shang Chi is caught in the middle of those two things. And that's really where that philosophy comes into play, where he has stripped himself of identity, where he had all of this responsibility that he was expected of. So he has completely stymied that into the opposite, no responsibility. He's pretty much a, a slacker with, with nothing that just will kind of live devoid of just having fun and, and no actual aspirations. Cause that's, the only way he understands he could move on from the trauma that he does have inside. But that's kind of an in-between place. It's it's moving on instead of looking constantly looking back like Wenwu, but it's it's also toxic. It's it's still self-flagellation in some way. It's not living up to yourself or actually building your own identity. It's you're still reacting to the past in an unhealthy way. Yeah, which you see uh, both with uh, both with Shang Chi and with Xi Ling, who who like goes on to like leave their father and form an identity for himself herself completely differently uh, than Shang does, and but it's a it's an identity that's still her kind of half imitating her father. Like she doesn't seem terribly interested in the acquisition of power or money. She just wants a name for herself and a name for the sake of a name. Yeah. With no real ambition or drive behind it. So even she's still kind of hollowy, hollow, hollowly living out uh, this memory of what she's used to. Which, which is also why it's so fucking interesting that she's in charge of the Ten Rings. Uh, yes. In the after credit scene, because what does that mean? Yeah, what exactly does this entail? Like, what is her version of this? What what is she what is she attempting now that she has this place? Uh, I think an interesting like opposite number to all that would be Aquafina's character, Katie. Who yeah. like this this is that was something that really surprised me uh, with that screenplay is because any in any other script a character like katie would be made fun of by the script and yeah. would be proven wrong about all of her misplaced optimism and self-love i like how it's made very clear that no K katie is perfectly fine where she is in life right now she's she's living her best life but she's also in perfectly willing to drop what she's doing and better herself at a moment's notice if that's what the situation calls for, like she's not stuck in a rut. She's just flexible. Exactly. 
she actually has true happiness. And I think it's interesting that Shang-Chi is essentially imitating her in life instead of discovering himself. I think that's where their relationship is so interesting and why I'm also glad it wasn't played for any kind of romance. Essentially, he's been raised to be to lead the Ten Rings, to be Wenwu, to be the Mandarin. He pushes that away and instead he turns to someone else to essentially copy what they do, what their life is. And like, well, Katie seems happy. I'll just be Katie. All right, write, write that down to them having the same job, which requires matching uniforms. <laughs> and this, and the screenplay never calls this out, which I, which I really love. I, I love how intelligent this movie treats its audience and takes its, it takes its points to actually call things out, but not in even then, not even direct ways. I, I, I really love Wen Wu's power of a name speech um where he asked katie which i it's still amazing to me to see this in a mainstream movie to ask katie what's your actual name because it's not katie no what's your non-westernized name um and that's a fucking awesome just bit by itself but then you get into wenwu's speech and then wenwu explaining the mandarin name and where that comes from and why it's ignorant and just completely fucking crazy and wrong but also just the power of names in general, the name, the power of the name Shang-Chi, the, the power of the individual with the name, power of individuality that comes with a name and wearing that name, wearing a title. The movie puts that philosophy out there, but doesn't explain, doesn't stop and go. And this is how it pertains to the rest of the film. Yeah, the movie is very reliant on you to connect the dots with that kind of stuff, which I, I really appreciate. And. I think that's very appropriate with for the journey Shang-Chi goes on is that he's not handheld for the journey and arc he needs to take for where he ends up. And I, I think that's really interesting for if you, if you watch Shang-Chi throughout the film where he reacts to the certain events, he, he isn't in a straight line to head to where he is at the end of the film. Not at all. He gets there through self-fulfillment and really learning about himself, learning about his ancestry, his history, learning about his mother, learning how to fight in a different way, learning how to let go of, of trauma and pain and, and confronting his father and standing up to his father and beating him, not physically, but beating him emotionally is what ends up standing out to Shang-Chi and also rejecting the idea that he, he is a killer. Yeah, I... I remember walking out of the theater thinking it was a bit odd from a storytelling standpoint to give us Shang's confession to killing the last person who was responsible for his mother's death, but not giving us any kind of like flashback or information on, you know, what the fallout to that was uh, and what, what Shang-Chi did afterwards. And then I thought about it for a little while and realized, Oh no, the entire film is what happens afterwards. Yeah. Every action Shang-Chi takes in that movie is a direct result of the time his dad got him to kill that guy. We actually don't really need a flashback or like any kind of button onto that point to know how he's been dealing with that because that's the most important thing about his character. It's you just it just doesn't fall into place until after that. Yeah. 
his entire life has been on hold since the moment he killed that guy. And it's very rare you see a movie that kind of does that, where that's part of the backstory, but there's usually still some sort of in-between tale that usually have to see through a flashback or have to have the character explain. But no, Shang-Chi killed that guy and has been in holding pattern until this movie starts, until he's attacked on that bus. And this is the aftermath of it. This is the journey he has to take to confront that moment. Which is such a great reworking of Shang-Chi's origin, too. Because I, I wasn't expecting them to use much of anything from the initial comics, but uh, Shang's origin in here is pretty much just the first issue of Shang-Chi. It just plays out whenever he's a young adult instead of a 20-something. Yeah, kind of like a how a lot of the retellings of Matt Murdock's origin bump his father's death down from his college years to whenever he's a teenager or younger, just to give it a little bit more d- dramatic sting. Which, uh, speaking of, I, I, go, going back to what you were saying about Wen Wu earlier, an interesting thing I read uh, from the director, Destin Creighton, was that he and the screenwriter went into this movie with what they called the Wen Wu list, which was just a list of of Asian bad guy cliches they were not going to pursue. <laughs> like, uh, they, they were very, they were very focused early on. He's not going to have facial hair. He, if he has long hair, it's not going to be in modern times. <laughs> He's going to be very masculine and not, you know, a mincing, effeminate uh, creature like a. Fu Manchu was always portrayed. And his goals were not going to be motivated by like a, a lust to dominate or like evil arcane magic or anything like that. Which is why they very specifically like gave Wen Wu's uh, both kind of a, a vaguely defined motivation uh, before he, he's introduced to Shang-Chi's mother and a very sympathetic motivation afterwards. Because they seem to feel like they were absolutely threading a needle uh, with that presentation. Yeah. Right, right, right up to them pointing out why the name the Mandarin is stupid and racist, and they're not going to use it. <laughs> Which I do love that we finally get the real Mandarin all these years later. We we do still need to, like, take it down one peg, because it is a fucking Mandarin. <laughs> But it, but I do love, but it's still canon, so it's still Marvel canon that he was the Mandarin at some point. It was just stupid and wrong and named by white people. Um, <laughs> also, having, hey, remember, the, you know, the idea of the Mandarin twist in Iron Man 3 is really good. It's a shame that idea isn't really in that movie. So let's just have the real Mandarin explain what the twist was in Iron Man 3 <laughs> so it actually works this time. Um, and boy, that kind of redeemed that. Uh, yeah, I've grown to really like uh, Iron Man 3 in re- recent years, but yeah, without a doubt, the uh, Mandarin twist is still the weakest part of that movie, especially since it's all a build-up to Guy Pierce screaming, I'm the Mandarin, and then breathing fire. Oui. Which I was really hoping we'd get a flashback to in this movie. God, I just, I'm so upset that Long will never battle Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man. Could you fucking imagine? Because that's perfect, that's that's what we wanted. Oh, God. But I do, but going back to something you said about Wenwu's kind of 
undefined motivation um, before he settles down. I do think a lot of it can be said, can be said, can come down to Lung's performance, which is, of course, top tier, as all as he always is, of course. But he's given a lot of great material. But in those in that opening prologue, you see him continually amass power, and all these things are happening around him. But he always kind of just has the same look on his face. He's always just present for the amassing of power. The amassing of strength, the 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 winning of battles, the everything he accomplishes, he's empty. He's trying to fill a void, and it's when he falls in love and when he has a family and he puts the ten rings away. That's actually when he's whole. That's actually what he's been looking for this entire time. It's not about power for Wen Wu, which makes it that much more painful for him when he loses it, and he loses it to what he was previously. Yeah, I, I I really appreciate the fact that Wen Wu like there's absolutely no twist with Wen Wu and his motivations. He's actually sincere throughout the entire film. Yeah, which I I think really empowers Shang Chi's arc of false growth up until his actual growth. Is Wen Wu is honest that there's no there's no villain. Aha! I I you know. With with Wen Wu, there he is. Just he's very straightforward. He's exactly what you expect. He's he is for better or for worse complete, even when he's incomplete. And Chong isn't. Chong doesn't become whole until he stops clenching his fists and he he lets go. Which is, it's it's very nice to uh, see a Marvel origin movie with that concise a point yes like th this movie for lack of a better term this movie checks out it's like no no it it, it earns all of the all of the uh conclusions it arrives at all of the character arcs <laughs> makes sense like it, this is all rock solid and the abomination was there <laughs> the abomination was there hanging out with wong the most famous wizard in the world i you know that better be an entire episode of she-hulk just <laughs> Abomination and Wong hanging out, doing Fight Club stuff, being best friends. One, one of them being played by Tim Roth ten years later. Who must be so happy yet so confused. <laughs> also, fucking, uh, before we, we leave, I, I do just want to say, like, going back to uh, the fights, b between this and Black Widow, isn't it nice to see some actual goddamn fist fights in these movies again? It's, I I really hope Marvel keeps it up. Like I know you can't do fist fights all the time, but it was it pre it pretty much had come down to when Captain America fights somebody and when Black Widow fights somebody. But between the choreography of a Black Widow the movie and Shang Chi, man, Marvel I really do I really hope is showing that like we're we're gonna head into a more physical direction sometimes with some of these. Like, it's not yeah. always going to be magic bullshit. Like, we are actually going to use choreography and plan these things out and do some cool styles. Like, there's going to be some sty stylistic choices with the fights instead of just some cool generic action stuff happening. Anyway, on with the Kitsunis. <laughs> um, but enough about justice for Death Dealer. <laughs> Still mad. Okay. 
You'll always be soulless in our hearts, brother. Death Dealer will come back. I- I'm tr- I'm trusting somebody. Marcus and McFeely will come back to write <laughs> another movie for Marvel just to, like, fix Death Dealer. Give Death Dealer something. Oh, God. Oh. Uh, fucking uh, Razor Fist, Death Dealer, Taskmaster, and and Crossbones. I'll team up with a, re- a rebuilt Korath the Pursuer. Uh, <laughs> and curses there. They become a fallen angels. Yes! See, that, that would be the most comic book accurate thing in the world. A movie called Fallen Angels of just the things other people left behind and didn't use. Godspeed, Curse. You really were wasted. You were a cool practical effect. Anyway, um... But uh, enough of us gabbing. Um, you can, of course, find Box Office Pulp at boxofficepulp.com. Please subscribe and rate, rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music. You know, wherever you listen to your podcasts, just, it, it helps us a lot. Um, you can also tweet at us uh, at Box Office Pulp. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com uh, slash Podcast. I'm at Lucky Deck Napier. Jamie? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at MondoFunky. But no, why did Razor Fist live? Uh, he, he had a truck. Like, he was everybody's ride out of the Sacred Kingdom. That actually does track. Does track. I hope they killed him afterwards. As soon as he got out of the car, Shang-Chi pulled out a gun and shot him in the back of the fucking head. Good night, everybody! And like that, he's gone. I'm still so disappointed that Razor Fist didn't lose his other hand, so he has two blade hands like comic book Razor Fist who can't go to the bathroom. I'm fascinated that they apparently filmed Razor Fist's origin. <laughs> apparently Razor Fist was really fucking important at some point. Why did they drive did, did did Wen Wu drive past a cave where like Razor Fist was fucking playing the guitar or something? I, I like to think he found a baby Razor Fist and coddled him. Like he had a tiny plastic knife glued to his stump. <laughs> Toddler's first razor fist. <laughs> this is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.